I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Okay, well, if you would, open your Bibles up to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 5, and here we are getting close to being done with the book of 1 Peter. We've got this week and next week, and then we're done with 1 Peter. Um, that's my plan, anyways. It may it may take about 17 weeks to finish. No, I think it'll be this week and, and next week, and then we're done. And I'm toying around with several different ideas. I have too many ideas of what to do next. I'm considering doing a topical thing on heaven and topical thing on hell. What does the Bible teach about those those, those places, those issues, and those things? I was thinking about doing um, how we got our Bible and talking about the canonization of scripture and manuscripts and things like that in a in as simple of a way as I can, because my goal is always to bring these these apologetic issues to to just your average, average everyday person so you don't have to have like a special degree to understand it because um, I don't have a special degree anyways <laughs> but um, I'm also thinking if I did that if I did on how we got our bible I'd like to then follow it up with a, a thing on inerrancy because I think that's an important issue we're facing today anyway so I, I've got lots of ideas um, there's other stuff too we could go through a different book um, I would like at some point on Sunday night to do Hebrews I would be very excited to do that. That is, that is that is a difficult book of the Bible. It really is. It really is. Because we don't have a Jewish mentality, so we have to keep learning a Jewish mentality to interpret it correctly. But anyhow, here we are, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. Gave you time to get there. It says, Likewise you, younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Now, sometimes I think we can be way too casual with the Bible. And by casual, I mean, we, um, well, we, we read it like the way we do with instructions. Like, I don't know if you're like this, but with instructions, I buy, I buy something and it comes with instructions. I was assembling a computer recently because it was just time to, to get in there and get a computer. It's cheaper to build it myself. So I went ahead and tried. First time I've done that. But I get the computer parts and then I start, you know, putting it together. And then as I go, wait, well, I don't know what to do with this. Then I'm like, where's that instruction booklet? Right. And then I open the instruction booklet. I glance at a couple pictures. I look at three words. I close it again and try it once more. I'm really bad when it comes to instructions but that's because I usually think I could probably figure it out on my own. And I'll be honest, I'm right at least 7% of the time. <laughs> but it is important for us to you know, follow the actual instructions. I think, though, that sometimes we come to the Bible and we read it the way we do instructions. So I've, re- I've just read these verses. We read three verses. But how much of the actual content actually made it into our minds? Or did we just sort of skim it, find a couple words, we had one thought, we, ooh, and then we just ignored kind of the rest? I think it's very common. I see it all the time where we get into the word, and I've seen it mostly with youth who are, have a drug problem. They're drugged to church. And they're sitting there in the, in the, in the, in the seat here at the church, and, just, and I go, open your Bibles, and they open their Bibles, and as soon as I start reading, they tune out. Now, it's not the majority. Don't get discouraged here, but there are those who do that. They just immediately tune out. Now, I know our Sunday night group doesn't tune out because if you were, you'd be tuning out at home. You wouldn't even be here Sunday night. (laughs) But sometimes we can just be too casual. We can read a passage and miss what it says. But I want to show you real quick through an example in Matthew. So um, keep your place in 1 Peter. Go to Matthew 22. Then we're going to come back. 
I want to show you how important it is that we actually look at the very words themselves, that we look word for word, phrase for phrase, and really consider not only what it says, but how it says it and why it's there in context and all that sort of thing. Why do we study the Bible like this? Well, at one point, Jesus in Matthew 22, he is encountering these Pharisees, these Sadducees, these different groups. And at one point, the Sadducees, they come to him with a question, Jesus, they see, they don't think the resurrection is a reality. They think there is no there is no real resurrection in that physical sense. And so they go to Jesus and they're trying to stump him with their challenging questions, just like we get today. And they're like, Jesus, and they ask him this complicated question about the resurrection. If a woman has a husband and he dies, and then she has another husband and he dies, and another husband and he dies, many husbands later, then she finally dies. Who gets the wife in the resurrection? Here's Jesus' answer to them. Verse 29 of Matthew 22. Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken. <laughs> they just asked a question. They didn't even say what they thought, right? He's like, you're wrong. Not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. Notice this. He accuses these, these people knew the scriptures in the sense that they could quote chapter and verse, in the sense that they knew way more than your average person did about the Bible. He goes, but you don't know it. You, you know it, but you don't really know it. Nor do you know the power of God. And then verse 30, he makes his case. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven in the sense of not having those, those types of relationships. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read? Now, this is an insult to them. They have read, but they haven't. You know, they read it, but they didn't get it. They read it over and over again, but didn't pay attention to it. They read it and missed what Jesus is saying. Have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? Now notice how he interprets this Old Testament quote. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Wait, God just says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Like, and now he's the God of, now that proves the resurrection's real? Like, I don't get it. Well, that's because we need to read it more closely. Let me emphasize the verb that Jesus is emphasizing here. He says, have you not read, right? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Not I was. I am. God is quoting this years later after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have physically died. And he declares that he is still their God. Well, they don't have a God if they're gone. But if they have an eternal life, if they have an afterlife, then he can still be their God. So Jesus bases a doctrine about eternal life on the tense of a single verb in an Old Testament sentence. What? I mean, Jesus is doing the same kind of verse-by-verse, word-for-word Bible study that we're doing Sunday nights. He does it here. And he rebukes them for having not done it. So the point I'm saying is, if Jesus exegetes, you know, gets out of the scripture, through the tense of a verb, giving important theology, then I think that we should treat our New Testament the same way. I think that we should look at it, and we should consider these types of things. We can consider context. Yeah, we consider the culture. Yeah, we consider the, the, the people it was written to. Those are good considered. But most importantly is, what does it actually say? You know, read the words themselves. Generally speaking... The way it's written will protect us from understanding it wrong. And reading it carefully and reading it thoughtfully and reading it slowly will unlock these beautiful things.
that will really help us in life, really, truly help us. So let's read it again, First Peter chapter 5, and then we're going to go through it, hopefully somewhat like Jesus, <laughs> at least we're going to attempt to. First uh, Peter chapter 5, verse 5 says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. So the first thing we notice is that this passage in verse 5 is to younger people. It's written to younger people. Now, it is really heavy on my heart in my teaching to help people realize that the Bible has specific words for specific types of people and specific seasons of life. So here it's talking to younger people. Now, before we generically say, what does that mean to you? We should ask, what does that mean to younger people? Right? We should be like, let's apply it to the people that it's directly written to. I think that the Bible doesn't just give advice to humans, but it specifically has advice that's catered towards men, advice that is catered towards women, advice that is catered towards children, toward young men and young women. The Bible actually doesn't have any advice for teenagers because the Bible doesn't seem to believe in teenagers. It just believes in children, young men, young women, and men and women. And that's why I often, I just try to remind myself to call the, the teens as much as possible that they're teenagers. I mean, they're technically teenagers, right? But I call, try to call them young man, a young, young lady. I tell the ladies, you're young ladies. And some of them are like, oh, don't call me that. But I think because that invokes responsibility. <laughs> but it's a healthy thing. Um, but so the Bible has counsel to them. The Bible has special advice for older ladies, older men, actually. The Bible has specific advice for workers. We've talked about that. For parents, for specifically for fathers, actually. Specific advice for royalty. Did you know that? Specific advice for money lenders. Specific advice for teachers, for the military, people serving in the military, for governments in general. It has advice, I mean, just you, you name it, you name the walk of life, and there are specific advices for those types of people. And I think that it really is important for us to say, what season am I in? What calling do I have? And dig in and find the specific advice for you so that you could do better because it will be really perfect just for you. It'll be like, this is what you need. This is what you need, whether you realize it or not. This is what you need to honor God and glorify him in the position you have. I think husbands better learn what God says for husbands. Wives better learn and practice what God says for wives. We really, really need this. We really need it. And then take those things and keep them constantly in mind. If you're like thinking, you know, I'd like to get into a Bible study, but I'm not really sure what I want to study on my own. Well, I'd be like, find your walk of life. Find the scriptures that deal with that and start meticulously studying that. You know, taking in mind context and is it Old or New Testament and the variations there and all that stuff, of course, but to do that. So here are the advices to younger people and they're told to submit to, the, to their elders. Now, in our culture, we definitely need to hear that elder is a compliment and not an insult. In the Bible, it was considered an insult in biblical times to say that you're not old. <laughs> that was considered an insult. Well, you're, you're young. Ugh. That was an insult. In our culture, we flipped it because we've made things about outer things instead of inner things. Most people are better when they're older than when they're younger. <laughs> 
you know, better versions of themselves, so to speak. Um, and there should be great respect shown to all older people by default. I try to show great respect to those that are, that are older than me. I feel sometimes awkward when I'm being asked to uh, counsel someone who might be older than I am. I try to approach it in a different fashion than I would if it was someone younger than me. And it's just to show respect and show that I'm like, hey, yeah, maybe I'm giving you advice, but you are, you're, my, you're in a sense, you're my elder. And that's important, I think. Um, the Bible actually exhorts uh, Timothy when he was uh, like a young pastor and it says how he was to minister to the older men and it says to exhort older men as fathers so that Timothy was to treat them all in like a fatherly type position, just the older men in general. So um, this is for a couple reasons. One is I don't want to be disrespectful to those men. The other reason is I don't want to be a fool because I spoke too soon. And there's actually a really cool example of this. If you would turn to Job chapter 32. This is a neat example. You guys might be familiar with Elihu. Job had multiple friends and they came to him and they quote unquote comforted him in his sorrow and his difficulty. They were, they were miserable comforters. That's what Job calls them. But you've got 31 chapters of all this stuff going on. Job goes through hardships, then his friends come and then he complains about it. So they accuse him of being a sinner and that's why it happened. And then he complains more and attacks them and they attack him and he attacks them and they attack him. After 31 full chapters of this, Elihu, his youngest friend, finally decides to speak. Elihu is the only guy in the book of Job who doesn't get rebuked for what he says. That's very significant. Job's rebuked for what he says and his other friends are also rebuked for what they say, but Elihu's not. This doesn't mean everything he says is perfectly golden, but he doesn't get rebuked for it. But notice how he, he starts. He waits till chapter 32. He chronologically waits until they have talked and talked and talked until they're losing their voices. And finally he speaks and look at what he says in verse 4. Now because they were years older than he, Elihu had waited to speak to Job. When Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, his wrath was aroused. So Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzite, answered and said, I am young in years and you are very old. That's a compliment. Okay, don't take it wrong and read it with the wrong glasses. Therefore, I was afraid and dared not declare my opinion to you. I said, age should speak and multitude of years should teach wisdom. And it should. But there is a spirit in a man and the breath of the almighty gives him understanding. Great men are not always wise. Trump. Nor do the aged always understand justice. Therefore, I say, listen to me. I also will declare my opinion. Indeed, I waited for your words. I listened to your reasonings while you searched out what to say. I paid close attention to you. And surely not one of you convinced Job or answered his words. Lest you say, we have found wisdom, God will vanquish him, not man. Now he has not directed his words against me, so I will not answer him with your words. They are dismayed and answer no more. Words escape them, and I have waited, because they did not speak. Because they stood still and answered no more, I also will answer my part. I too will declare my opinion. So he begins by just explaining, I waited and waited and waited. You guys are done. They had no, nothing to say to Job anymore. And he goes, okay, well, now I'll speak. One of the things that younger people should do is allow the older to speak first. That's a great principle of life. It really is. And now some young people might get really offended and upset. Not to that, I would just say, you're just arrogant. <laughs> you should just, you're just being arrogant and rude. You should just let them speak first. That's just appropriate. I don't think this means children should be seen and not heard. Like that's a different thing altogether. We're talking about 
in a discussion, in a council, when decisions are being made and things are being brought up, it is appropriate for the youth to go, I'm going to let the older speak first. I'll hold my tongue and I will listen because perhaps they will have better wisdom than me. Now, at the end of that, if, if you still have something to add, then bring it in. And then you will have earned the respect probably of those people because you sat and you listened to them. I think that there is something to be learned here. And it's a biblical principle in general, you know, it's just to respect your elders. All that having been said, that's not what Peter's really talking about in 1 Peter chapter 5. So let's look at 1 Peter 5. It is a biblical principle though, so I didn't want to discount it. In 1 Peter 5, likewise you younger people submit yourselves to your elders. Well, the context, if you remember from two weeks ago, last time we met, the context in, of elder in 1 Peter 5 is church leadership. It's not older in the sense of elder. It's leader in the church, that sense elder. And so when he says you younger people submit to yourselves to your elders, it's specifically saying people in the church, younger people in the church, submit yourselves to the leaders in the church. That's specifically the context of 1 Peter 5. I don't think I've ever heard anybody teach it that way. But that's the context when you read it. This leads me to a question, though. Are elders always eld? <laughs> right? Are they always eld? Are they always older? And not necessarily. Actually, we have a biblical example of one elder, one leader, who was not. And that would be Timothy. Timothy's appointed New Testament guy, New Testament leader. In fact, he's going around in the churches and he's appointing leaders. But he himself is young, which is why Paul writes to him, Timothy, let no one despise your youth. Now, if he was 70 years old, this would obviously not be being said, <laughs> except as a joke. But no, let no one despise your youth. And then he tells him how. He goes, but be an example to the believers. And so I think for younger people in leadership, there's going to be even a, a closer eye on them. And you need to walk in even greater maturity to show that you're, you're being an example to others on how they should live, not just trying to be the, the, the new cool guy. You know, some guys, they really do try to pull off being the cool guy. That's their main goal um, instead of being an example. But that's our call. So, um, so okay, who are the elders that the young people are to submit to? Well, specifically, verse 5 says, submit yourselves to your elders, not to all elders, to your elders. So it's limited, and I think that this is, there's safety in this, that God's like, I'm not asking you to submit to anybody who shows up and says, I'm an elder in such and such church, now do what I say. But you're not an elder in my church, so I don't know you, and I don't have... The leadership of my church putting their hands on you saying, we, you know, we support, we believe this guy, he's been tested and approved. You're a stranger to us, so we're not going to look at that leadership and respect it. We're just going to be generous and kind, but you're not, a, you're not our leader. In the same sense, I think as, we, as Christians, we look at um, the leaders of our own home fellowships or our own churches, wherever it is we gather, and we say, I'm going to give them that respect. I'm going to look at them as a leader. And there may even be... Um, more uh, separated ministries going on in the church where this person only has a sphere of authority in this particular environment. And outside of that, they don't exercise that authority. And that's fine to recognize that too. So submit yourselves to your elders. There's a safety in there. And we, as always, submission is limited because you never submit to an elder or anyone if it causes you to sin against God or to violate something, some other biblical principle. Where say the Lord's like, Mike, I want you to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And Pastor Grace says, Mike, I want you to teach six nights a week. And I'm like, 
no, you know, I can't do that because I will be violating that command. I have a ministry to my bride and that's important. So I only teach five nights a week. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. I hope, I hope I'm kidding on that. <laughs> I hope that never happens. That would be horrible. Um, yeah. So submit yourselves to your elders and it's limited as unto the Lord, just like all the other submission issues in first Peter. But notice this, who's submitting? It's submit yourself. This is a verb that you do to yourself. I'm submitting me. I'm not, notice this, it's not being said, elders, make the youth submit to you. No, he says, young people, submit yourselves to your elders. This is the act of the person doing the submitting. And this is always the case. We never see abuse encouraged in scripture, forced submission. We just see God encouraging us on who we should submit to. He tells the youth what the youth should do, the older what the older should do. He tells the wife what the wife should do, the husband what the husband should do, and doesn't ask us to force those sorts of things on others. Because if you're forced, you're not actually submitting, are you? That's not submission. That's just control. If you're penalized, you're not doing this. If I have to be forced to submit, I'm not submitting, obviously. If I'm being penalized, if I'm being only submitting because of some sort of negative consequence that's coming into my life, then I'm not actually submitting. And if I'm hounded, that's not submission. I tell this to the students in our youth ministry. I explain the difference between active rebellion and passive rebellion, right? Active rebellion is, no, I won't do it. Passive rebellion is, oh, yeah, I'll do it later, and then you don't. That would be passive rebellion. It's like, it's rebellion with, but with the appearance that I'm going to kind of, but I'm really not, I'm just not submitting. And so, and then all of a sudden everyone's like, oh gosh, I've done that. I, I think, I think that that's good to recognize it, you know, for all of us. We all fall short. Not that that's an excuse. It's more of an indictment against us. <laughs> um, so if you're hounded, you're not doing the submission thing. It should be biblically, it should be effortless on the part of the leader to get people to do the things that are right should be should be completely effortless i shouldn't have to force people to follow if if it's in a you know a right capacity in which i'm leading i shouldn't have to force this and neither should say pastor gary if he's like hey guys we're gonna do this and we're like, and he's like come on guys please come on please guys please i mean this is like not supposed to happen and so we um we want to be bringing ourselves under submission to godly or correct authority in this case. should be effortless. Now, notice this. Submitting to their authority does not mean you're saying that they're right. That's an interesting concept, but it's true. It doesn't mean you're saying they're right. I may do what they tell me to do, but I'm not necessarily approving of their decision. Um, I've done, I've had, just being real, and if it surprises you, then... I'm glad now you know, but I've had moments where Pastor Gary makes a decision that I don't like, and I do it anyways, because it's not my job. My job is to bring myself under submission to him. And so I go, well, have you thought about this? And he's like, nope, just do it. Okay. And I do it. Now, unless he's asking me to do something ungodly, I'm going to do it. And he hasn't done that yet. <laughs> yet. No, <I'm> <laughs> Jesus talks about this. Um, he warns the disciples to beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And then he explains clearly that the leaven of the Pharisees, this is the doctrine or the teaching of the Pharisees. He tells them, do what they say, but don't do what they do. 
But then he also warns them against the doctrine. So what are they to do that they say? Well, they have a certain spiritual authority, and they're supposed to follow because they were the ones teaching the Bible to the people, even if they did it poorly. So they're to get the doctrines and stuff like that from the Bible, but not from the Pharisees. They had to like make a separation. They had to work at it to figure out what of what they said should I do and should I not do. And that's you. I mean, you, you stand here as the critics of my Bible study, and I say, rightly so. Rightly so. You shouldn't just absorb everything I say. You should think about it. Please do. I like thinkers. I appreciate, I appreciate that. Um, and I think the Lord does too. The Bereans were, were, were commended because they didn't take their word for it, but they searched it out. Well, they weren't committed for being doubters. They were committed for searching it out. And that's what we should all do. That's what we should all do. So there is a limited follow, but we are called to be in submission. And then it goes on in 1 Peter 5. It says this. All of you be submissive to one another. All of you be submissive to one another. Now, I have heard this taught um, that this sort of means that there's really no authority and that we should all submit to one another, which turns out to not actually mean much of anything. Because if everyone's submitting to everybody, then basically the meanest person is in charge. <laughs> That's pretty much how it is, right? No, the context, though, let's, let's zoom out in First Peter. He's gone through workers submitting to employees, that's 1 Peter 2.18, servants submit to your masters, right? He's talked about citizens submitting to government. He's talked about wives submitting to husbands. And he's talked about youth submitting to the leadership in the church. He's talked about all these different... And then he goes, now all of you submit to one another. Well, who's the one another? Well, what role am I in? I've, I've got several people, no matter who you are, who you're supposed to submit to. Submit to them. That's the idea. He's sort of tying all the submission stuff together that he's been dealing with. Walk in submission to those who, who are over you. And this is definitely not uh, something people enjoy in the flesh, but it's something God has certainly called us to do. Certainly called us to do. So that's the all of you in that context. Now, the, all that being said, I, I think that when we talk about submission, um, it does prick our hearts in certain ways, especially if you find yourself um, having, a, having trouble with someone you're submitting to. And having some difficulties there. Um, first, recognize the limits of that submission. But the next thing I'll say is this. is If you have a problem with authority, then you, and I'm, not, I'm not saying this callously, but it's true. Then you ultimately have a problem with God. Because God is the ultimate authority. And according to Romans 13, he sets up the authorities that are in our lives. And at some point, if I don't want to submit and I don't want to submit and I don't want to submit, at some point I'm just rebelling against God. Let me read it to you. Romans 13 verses 1 and 2. It says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. This is going to cause them hardship. It's going to be bad news for them. I think to resist authority, unless that authority is calling you to be ungodly, in which case you, you, you submit to God every time. But unless it's violating one of those principles, then to resist that authority is resisting God. And so we get this blanket sense of submit to authority, whatever those authorities happen to be in your life. Rightful authorities, right? Not, not, the, not whoever it is that claims authority over you that's not right. Now, this is why, as you continue in, in uh, 1 Peter 5, verse 5, the rest of the verse says this, that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now you see the context of this proud, humble thing. It's not just random. 
He's like, hey, submit. Hey, all of you, submit to whoever it is that's in your life that you know God's called you to submit to. And he knows how this hits his hearers. So he goes, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Because it takes humility to do this. It takes a genuine, a genuine humility to walk in submission. That phrase is from Proverbs 3.34, that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is why his advice to them then, after saying all the submission stuff, is humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Because submitting requires humbling. I have to humble myself to submit. The good news is, if you're humble, submission is easy. If you're not, it's probably because of pride. That might be a hard pill to swallow, but I suggest gagging it down (laughs) for our own sakes, because God does resist the proud. And we will find ourselves not fighting against the person that irritates us at work or in the government or whatever. We'll find ourselves fighting against God. And that is not a not a happy place to be. So then it says that we should all be clothed with humility. Now that is a very interesting phrase. It's just the poetry of it, right? Like you're putting on humility like it's clothing. Like this will be the thing that represents how I present myself to others, clothed with humility. Now I'm not here uh, boasting about myself in any regard, um, but I and I don't think that this is that rare. It certainly shouldn't be for believers, but I really, I don't mind leading I'd say I don't mind leading. <laughs> I'm not sure I even want to half the time. I don't mind it though. That's fine. But I really also don't mind following other leaders. And so I've been on a mission trip with uh, Pastor Nathan. He was like my number two guy and I led the mission trip. And then we later, a couple of years later, we did another mission trip and he was leading it and he was organizing it and all that. And I was his number two guy. And I was like, I actually found it easier <laughs> to, to walk in submission to his leadership. I bring him, he makes a decision, I go for it. And it may not be exactly the choice I make, but that's irrelevant because I understand. Maybe because I have led, I get what it's like to be in that spot. Um, But we should not have a problem with leadership. We really shouldn't as Christians. And knowing that that leadership is accountable to God, you know, that that, that should appease us somewhat. So with all that in mind, I just want to read this again. 1 Peter 5, verses 5 and 6. Let's read it. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. You see how like when we study it and you get into the words, I just love it. Because then you read it again and it's like, it's like it's 3D, you know, the scripture. It's just so, it's so neat. It's such a wonderful thing. Um, some people, their attitude towards submission though, they only submit when they agree. I'll submit with you when I think you're right. That's not submission. You're just doing whatever you want. <laughs> They're submitting to you is really what you're trying to force because they have. To, I'll do it when I agree with you. In other words, I'll do whatever I'm going to do, whether I, whether you like it or not. And if you would decide that I should do something I already want to do, then good, I'll submit. <laughs> Rather, a believer should say, I will submit to rightful authority unless it is causing me to sin. I'll submit to rightful authority unless it causes me to sin. Rightful authority means two things. One, it's a legitimate role. It's a legitimate role in in your life. So like if I walked up and said, hey, I'm the president of Bellflower now. And we're starting our own nation and I'm now controlling you. And you're going to be the secretary and you're going to be the police, right? And uh, Tyler, you're going to be the tax collector. (laughs) Everybody's going to love you. (laughs) 
And then you guys rightly laugh at me, okay? It's wrongful authority for me to pretend to, to be in that place. So when someone, uh, maybe they're a leader, like if your boss is trying to force you to make decisions about your family, well, this is not their realm of authority. So that's not rightful authority. So I, I don't need to submit to that. I'll respectfully disregard what they say. Let's say I get married. Man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And so I'm there joined with my wife. And then parents are starting to nose in in an unhealthy way in my marriage, at which point I'm just like, Whoop. I love you. I respect you. But that's not right. And um, and so that's a good thing. It's okay to, to come out from under authority at the right time. The other thing that rightful authority means, uh, not only is it a legitimate role, but number two, it is... It means that the command is within the bounds of that role. The command is within the bounds of that role. So when I was a young, um, I had one of my parents. Um, I was following Jesus. We starting to, trying to. And the phone rings. And I go, yep, hold on. It's for you. Tell them I'm not here. <laughs> right? I want to submit to my parent, but... Do I lie? So I said, they're not available. <laughs> because that was true. <laughs> that was true. They're not available for you. That's for sure. No, they're not coming to the phone. <laughs> so, um, but, I, but I was like, I can't, I can't do that. I can't tell that lie. I can't violate that conscience before God. And that's, that's, that's a good thing. But we must not rebel because rebellion is, as the Bible says, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And God tells that to the people because he wants them to see, they know, they know witchcraft is wicked. He wants them to see how bad rebellion is. So he says that to them. So as a Christian, I think don't rebel is far too low of a standard and it's not God's instruction to us. He doesn't say don't rebel. He says submit actively. And that's a vastly different thing. And then we get the heart of it in there. We get the heart of it in there. And then at the end of uh, chapter 5 or 6, it says that he may exalt you in due time. There is a, a beautiful promise to those who are submitting under maybe some hard, difficult submission situations. And it's that God will exalt you in due time. God's going to bring you back up. I think sometimes we feel like, why am I always the one that has to yield? Why am I always the one that has to submit? Why do I constantly have to give in and give in and give in and give in? I just want to say, be patient. Just be patient. There is a future glory. There's a longer story than this moment that you're in right now, and God wants to exalt you in due time. Perhaps you'll be in a leadership role at a later time. In fact, are you in a hurry to jump into that role? I think the best leaders are the ones that don't really want the job because they must understand something about it. A leadership role is a servant position as far as Christians are concerned, if you do it as a believer. But also realize this, that I know we, we, we tend to gauge uh, patience in moments and sometimes in minutes. Like, boy, I've really been patient. I waited like a day. You know, I waited a week. I waited a month. But if you look at scripture, God seems to measure patience in decades. Look at his promise to Abraham and it was how many years before Isaac shows up? He tells Abraham, the same Abraham, that his, his children's 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 children are going to enter into the promised land 400 plus years later. He tells the people through the prophets that Jesus will show up. And Jesus does. At minimum 400 years later than the, than the latest of the prophets. He seems to measure patience in decades at minimum. 
It's like decades are like the milliseconds, you know? <laughs> like, and then like maybe, maybe uh, centuries are the seconds, you know? And millennia are the minutes. And it's been like two minutes so far. And he's like, yeah, be patient. <laughs> God will exalt us in due time. This is just a temporary scenario. Our whole life scenario is just temporary. And our goal is just be faithful and trust the Lord. Humble yourself and God will exalt you in due time. He's going to take care of it. He's going to take care of it. And maybe in heaven and that's fine. Verse 7, now that may make you feel trapped, and that's why I think verse 7 is written here. Oh, I'm submitting, and I don't have control, and I'm just supposed to submit and yield, and then trust God with the results. So this is why verse 7 is there. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. The direct context is this. I'm submitting, so I'm not in control, which causes me to worry, and therefore I'm going to take those worries and concerns and put them upon the Lord. I'm going to cast those cares upon him. It is the things we can't control that scare us. Is the things that were that are out of our control that worry us, and that's what submission it admits. I'm not in control, and so I'm going to take that stuff and I'm going to give it to the Lord. Um, turn, if you would, to Genesis 16. Genesis 16, and this reiterates what we've read in verse seven about how He cares for you. In Genesis 16, we read about not the most popular of people in the Old Testament, a lady named Hagar. What's neat about Hagar, as we read this passage, is that God cares about her. And even Hagar is surprised. So let's read the passage. Genesis 16, 7. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. Now she, she was fleeing from her mistress who was persecuting her because she, basically she gave lip to, to, to the mistress, Sarah. And then Sarah's like, ah, and starts harassing her. And so it was a cat fight. And then finally she takes off. So they're both in the wrong, okay? They're both bad guys here. That's the way it is. And verse 8, and he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Even though she was flawed, even though there was issues, even though Sarai's idea to, to have this thing happen... But Hagar went with this. It's a complicated scenario. Like sin always makes life radically complicated. But every time I counsel with people and sin was involved in the story, the story's like, I'm like, that's a messed up story. Wow, you got some hard things going on. Because sin just really, I mean, God's like, maybe when I said sin was bad, it was because it's actually bad. Like, it's like actually bad. Like, it's the same reason why you don't like, like shove toothpicks in, into your stomach. Like, this is bad. It's going to cause complications. Anyhow, so (laughs) so just a side note. Um, So he says, return and submit yourself. Verse 10, then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are with child and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction, which means God hears Ishmael. God hears. He shall be a wild man, his hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees. For she said, Have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. So the son is named God 
who hears, God hears me, and then the place is named God sees me. So he hears me and he sees me. And I want you just for a minute to not think about the prophetic stuff, and not th- but just think about the experience of Hagar. She's like, God sees me. He hears me. I was there just whimpering and crying in a bush, right? And he, and he heard that. And he came and he came to me. And he cares for me. And he saw me. And this, this blows her away. This just blows her away. God cares about me. He really does. This isn't to say that, that whatever I want, God's going to do that for me. Because I'm his favorite. God, but God cares about me. He actually cares. He's concerned about me, this person right here. He heard her, and when she realized he heard her, it blew her away. Listen to what God said about the people of Israel when they were being oppressed by the Egyptians. Exodus 3, 7, it says, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who were in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. They weren't the perfect innocent victims. They were still sinners. They were still failures. But God sees, hears, and knows what they're going through in a personal way. I want you to imagine as you read the book of Job, maybe next time, next Tuesday, you read it every Tuesday, right? Um, As you're going through the book of Job, just imagine, if you would, Job's shock when God shows up and actually answers him. He didn't expect it. In fact, he's complaining. There's no mediator. I can't talk to God. God wouldn't listen to me. And then God shows up. And one of the things that would blow Job away as he's continuing to process all this later on is like, God spoke to me? Like he cared about me? I mean, he said I was an idiot the whole time, but he was right. But he spoke to me. Like he actually spoke to me. I mean, this was just, I think this blew him away. Psalm 8, 4 says, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you visit him? Does this blow you away that God cares about you? He thinks about you? Cast your care upon him because he cares for you. It doesn't say he cares about your concerns. He's not worried about what you're worried about. He's caring about you. That's neat. That's neat. Even if the things I'm worried about are just lame, concerns that are pointless, they're what ifs. But God cares about me. That's wonderful. So I cast my cares upon him. Notice I cast my cares upon him, not before him. There's a difference. If I take my cares and I just sort of drop them on the ground before God, I'm sort of sacrificing those things. I'm like, I give these up. Right? But, but nothing's going to happen with them. They're just going to sit there and rot. You know? <laughs> but if I take my cares and I put them on the Lord, then he's going to carry my cares. He's going to take care of those things. Maybe not in the way I prefer, in my stupidity, <laughs> in my lack of knowing, but he will take care of that which concerns me. And that's beautiful. And that's exciting. He cares for me enough to care about what I care about. Not in a way that is me, means he's serving me, but it means he's taking care of me. And that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. I think that there t- there's a certain humility about casting our cares upon the Lord. Because... You see, when I, when, I, when I have to submit and I can't control things, I worry, and worrying becomes the only way I can try to pretend I'm controlling something. I'm worrying about it. I control it by worrying. 
And to then cast that care upon the Lord and give it to God for him to worry or not really worry about it, but him to take care of it. Well, that's like me saying, I'm really not controlling it now. <laughs> you know, I'm just going to give up. Now, it's a beautiful place if you can come to that place and cast your cares upon the Lord. But, um, you know, the, the, this, the word worry comes from a sense of like, say, if you have like a little knife and I got a piece of wood and I'm just scratching at the wood and I'm not really even making anything out of it. I'm just, it's called worrying. I'm, gonna, I'm worrying the wood. I'm just worrying it. I'm worrying it. I'm worrying it. Or you sit there with your Bible and you're working this page back and forth, you know, and you're not, you're just, you're just wearing it out. You're not doing anything with it. You're just fiddling. You're worrying it. That's what the word comes from, right? So what are you doing? I'm worrying. What are you worrying? Myself. That's all. I'm just wearing me out. I'm just wearing me out. So cast those cares upon the Lord. Why? Because he actually cares for you. It means God can take care of it because it's on him. I casting it upon him. Notice that the tense of the word, it really matters, right? It's on him. Do you trust God to do what's good with the things you're concerned about? Even if his will is not your will, then you don't have to worry. Our country is going downhill. It has been for a long time. We feel like we're almost in a free fall morally. It's just chaos. But as much as this grieves me and bothers me, I'm, I'm okay. Because ultimately God's in control and I'm casting that care before him. Like Philippians 4 says, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So that I'm going to take that care whenever those worries come up. How do I, how do, I do it, Lord? Okay, I'm going to cast my cares upon you. You do it by prayer. I pray about it, and I make sure to thank the Lord in the prayer. God, I thank you that you are going to be able to take care of what concerns me in your perfect way, in your perfect time. I trust you. Then I can go to bed. <laughs> then I can relax. You say, Lord, here's my heart, here's my hope, and here's my trust. Here's my request, but ultimately let your will be done. And I trust you with it because you care for me. I just think this is so, this is so important for us. I submit to those who God's called me to submit to. I realize I'm not in control. I get concerned about the things I can't control. So I take those concerns and I cast them upon the Lord. And then I have my peace restored. I think that's the flow of the passage in 1 Peter 5. And I think it's very healthy for us to take these words to heart. Um, in closing, I just want to say this, you guys. There is so much content in the word that it really is a lifetime thing. That as we as we look into it and we we don't just say, what does it mean to me? Rather, like, what does it actually mean? Is the, you know, that's the question I want to ask. But as I get to that meaning, I then get like... I mean, it's, it's, it's health food for my spirit, you know, like this is the stuff that it might be harder to chew because it took some labor to get it, but man, it really builds you up and it really helps you and encourages you. And so it's worth spending your whole life digging into the word and not ignoring the, the particulars of it. And, um, and so next week we're going to be doing first Peter five verses eight, and we're going to plow through and do the rest of the book. That's the plan. And, um, and we're also going to be doing spiritual warfare because look at the next verses. It says, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So I'm going to talk about, um, some spiritual warfare issues and some, some, uh, how do you resist and how you're steadfast in the faith. So I think that's going to be very, uh, edifying for us. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank, we thank you for your holy word, Lord. And we want to take right now, we want to apply what we've heard. Um, we just say, Lord, uh, show us the authorities in our lives. Help us to submit in a godly way, not yielding to sin, not yielding to bad thoughts or, or ideologies or uh, theologies, but rather to submit to the authorities that are appropriate and to trust you with the rest. There's so much in our lives we simply can't control, things we worry about. We want to learn to cast all of our cares upon you because you care for us. Remind us of your love, your goodness, and of our access to you through prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.